Please take your copy of God's Word, and let's turn together to Genesis chapter 28. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, of course, the text is printed in your order of service there. As we continue on in this book of Genesis, I don't want you to lose sight of the overarching theme from beginning to end. In this first book of the Bible, God is trying to show us that he is a good and gracious God. And here, especially in our text this morning, we see his grace, not only in in meeting Jacob with this vision, but ultimately telling us how we might find a place in the Father's presence. We need a stairway to heaven. We need a connector between heaven and earth, one upon whom the very messengers of God ascend and descend. But as the Bible itself teaches us, we have such a stairway. His name is Jesus. And he invites us this morning to come to him that we might know once again his goodness and grace. But in order to hear that message, that good news of the gospel, we need our God's help. So let's pray together. Almighty God, we do bless you for your kindness, the way you continue to declare your word to us, the way you continue to shepherd us in word, sacrament, and prayer. And so, Lord, we do pray you would come. Send your Holy Spirit, we ask so that we might have our eyes opened and we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the, le- to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then... The Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, one of the greatest rock and roll songs in history was Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. But like a lot of Led Zeppelin's songs, if you've tried to listen to the words, I mean, the words are a bit of a mishmash, aren't they? And especially Stairway to Heaven, which I think is the reason why Robert Plant didn't like to sing it live after it was such a big hit. Uh, the words, as you work your way through the lyric sheet, are, are just a crazy mix together of medieval magic and J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. But, but of course, you don't listen to Led Zeppelin for the words anyway, right? All I remember from Stairway to Heaven really is the first verse. It goes, there's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed, with a word she can get what she came for. Now, I have no idea what that means, but that's what I remember from the song. And when you think about it, I mean, it is kind of intriguing, the, the idea that you could somehow buy a stairway to heaven. You could somehow you could somehow gain for yourself an access to another realm, a portal, if you will, into the very presence of God. It's an intriguing idea, isn't it? But what if you could? I mean, what if there was a way, a stairway, a point of access, a portal into the very presence of God? After all, there, there are all sorts of times that come into our lives where we, we are desperate for God to speak. We long for, for God to rip the heavens open and, and invite us up or, or to come down into the situations that we face for, for him to speak. As we struggle with, with physical pain or emotional distress or relational brokenness or even our remaining sin. We, we long for a way into the presence of God. We long for a stairway to heaven. In some ways, we long for what Jacob experiences, don't we? For heaven to open up, for God to speak. But, but what we find here in Genesis 28, it not only tells us about Jacob's experience, it actually points us forward to the true stairway, the true stairway to heaven. Not, not a technique, not, not a set of principles, not, not a form of meditation, not something we can buy, not even a vision, a mystical experience. No, what we seek is actually whom we seek. In the midst of our struggle, we long for Jesus the stairway between heaven and earth, the connecting point between the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and, and you and me in our very real circumstances. We long for the one who is the way into the Father's presence, the truth we desperately long for, the life that actually leads to an eternal future. We long for him. Here, Jacob's not looking for this necessarily. He's on the run. He's on the run, convinced that Esau's going to kill him. And so he's running from his brother. And perhaps he's also running from the shame that comes from being a conniver and a deceiver and, and a betrayer of his own father. And he comes to this place near the town of Luz. He can't even find a place to stay the night. He's, he's sleeping outside the city. He takes rocks and places them around him, gets a rock for a pillow himself. 
perhaps pulls up his blanket and he falls asleep and he dreams a dream. What does he see? Well, verse 12 tells you. He sees there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So get the picture. Uh, the old gospel song has this as Jacob's ladder. But, but I think the imagery of a stairway is probably closer to the point. Perhaps what, what Jacob was seeing was something he had seen um, quite frequently in his growing up years. So we talked a little bit about this in Genesis chapter 11. The, a Mesopotamian ziggurat. A, Temples, perhaps, to various moon gods or other pagan deities that were made not just with a kind of stair-step technique, but would actually have a stairway. The idea is being that the worshippers would ascend up to the gods and, and God himself dwelt at the top of that stairway. And so perhaps in his dream, what actually is coming to Jacob's mind is this stairway and the messengers of God, the angels are ascending and descending along that stairway and they're going out to and fro across the earth and at the top of the stairway is Yahweh, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And his reaction to this entire vision emphasizes the significance he places on seeing this vision in this place. He says it in verse 17. Actually, at the end of verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Here, though he wasn't looking for it, Though he was on the run, on the run from his family, on the run from his shame. Yet God, in that particular place, rent the heavens and began to come to Jacob. He saw that this was the Lord's place, but more significant than that, he saw the Lord giving him promises. Verse 13, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, as the Lord gives these promises, there are two things to notice. And the first is that, is that here the Lord is actually report, re repeating these promises in the same form that he had given them to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 13. He was doing this covenant succession kind of work from, from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 26 to Genesis chapter 28. He was giving these promises, but he gave them in the same form as chapter 13. So chapter 12, God promises Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. You have a great name. Through all the families of the earth will be blessed. Of course, Abraham gets these promises and immediately goes down to Egypt, fleeing because of the famine. God brings him back, puts him right back in the land, and gives him the promises once again. And how does he do so? Well, he gives a promise about, about land and its directional aspects, west, east, north, south. He tells Abraham in chapter 13, 
You won't be able to number your posterity. They'll be like the dust of the earth. And he once again reiterates that in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, what's the form of these promises that, that God gives to, to Jacob here in chapter 28? The same. The same exact form. But also notice the same exact substance. There's a kind of covenant succession at work. In chapter 12, God gives these promises to Abraham. In chapter 26, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he gives them directly to Isaac, Abraham's son. Now here in chapter 28, he gives them again, this time to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. What is this, my friend, but covenant succession? That the, the covenant promises go from generation to generation in the same form and in the same substance. God operates the same way today, doesn't he? Same way today holds out the promise of the gospel. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. And those promises are not just for you, but for your children after you, for all those whom the Lord will call. God continues from the Genesis to Revelation to this own day to continue to extend those promises through the generations. That's what he's doing here. Now that had to have been hugely reassuring to Jacob. He had undoubtedly grown up with the with the stories concerning Grandpa way back in Haran and how God called him, even though he didn't know Yahweh. Yet Yahweh called him and gave these remarkable promises. Perhaps he heard his father say, and yes, and, and he gave me these same promises. And now here he is outside of Luz in this place that he's now naming Bethel, the house of God, where he's, he's stunned and God gives him the same promises and causes him to see his presence. God promises to, to continue with him. He says, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He's, he's seen that this is the Lord's place. He's seen God deliver these promises and he sees the presence of God with him. And now he hears God promise three particular things, not just a generic, I will be with you kind of promise. No, but three particular things. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you home. I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised to do. I wonder how Jacob heard this, how he, how he was processing all of this. I mean, think about it. He's on the run from his brother. His brother wants to kill him. He's heading to Uncle Laban's house. He doesn't know what's in front of him. He doesn't know if he's going to make it back. He thinks he's going to come home, but he, he's not certain because he's not certain when his brother's anger will finally ebb away. And in the midst of all of this trauma and all this turmoil and all of this running, God comes to him in the midst of it all and says, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. Just as I made promises to your grandfather and your father, I am making the same promises to you. And guess what? I'm going to be with you to make sure those things happen. And I'm going to bring you home. What an encouragement that had to have been to Jacob. But listen, listen to me this morning. Those promises aren't just for Jacob. Friends, you are the sons and daughters of Abraham. That's what the Apostle Paul tells you in Galatians chapter 3. 
which means that the generational promises that started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and ran through all the people of God have come now over 4,000 years to Memphis, Tennessee to you. You may be on the run this morning. You may be running from all sorts of relational difficulty. You may be running from all sorts of emotional trauma, from physical abuse even. You may be running from your own sense of guilt and shame that you're feeling so undone and you wish that no one really knew the real you. Listen to me. God hasn't forsaken you. He promises to be with you. He will accomplish his purpose in you and he's going to bring you home. He's going to bring you home to himself into the very dwelling place of God. That's what God promised Jacob. That's what God promises you. How do we respond to all that? Well, how did Jacob respond? I mean, in the midst of all of his worry, his anxiety, his fear, his flight, the unknown, look at what he says. And when he's startled awake, the very first thing he, he says recognizes God's presence. Look at, again at verse 16. He says, surely the Lord's in this place. I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I mean, the very first thing he, he says, says that he recognizes God is here. But Moses has this great little detail. This great little detail. You see it at the beginning of verse 17? And he was afraid. He was overawed. He was overawed and afraid because he recognized that he has come into the presence of the holy. And being in the presence of the holy showed him who he really was. He could see his sinfulness. And friends, that's always how it is when human beings encounter, genuinely encounter the living God. When you actually have come into the very presence of God and encounter the living God... You have been overwhelmed by a sense of the holy, and you have seen who you really are as a sinner. I mean, consider Moses this morning. You remember Moses at the burning bush? As soon as he realizes that the bush was speaking and it did not burn, what did God say? Take your sandals off. The, where you are standing is holy ground, and Moses falls on his face. Why? He's in the presence of the holy, and he's not. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he has this vision of God in his holy temple, surrounded by the angels, what does he say? He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I am done because my eyes have seen the living God. The apostle Peter, in Luke chapter 5, when he finally realizes who Jesus is, sitting in his boat that he is encountering the Holy One of Israel. What does he say? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why do human beings respond this way? Well, it's because it's only in the pure, holy light of God's holiness that we can actually see how dark and how dirty our hearts really are. If we don't encounter God, if we don't encounter the holiness of God, we can think we're pretty good people. We're handsome, we're smart, we get along in life, we're pretty well off with things. 
But when we actually encounter the living God, as, as Jacob has, the very stairway to heaven with God himself speaking to him, it's no wonder he was afraid because he's recognized he's been in the very presence of God. And yet though he's, he's recognizing this, he's not undone. Why? Because he rests in God's promises. Now on the surface, it, it may seem as though that what, what Jacob's going to say in verse 20 is responding from a position of unbelief or at least a kind of condition if God does such and such, well, then he'll be my God. But actually, the, the kind of conditional statement verse 20 is, especially in the light of what God's already said in verses 13 to 15, means that actually, grammatically, this should be rendered not if, but since. Since God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Since this is all true, just as he promised, then Yahweh will be and in fact is my God. And as Jacob's story unfolds, that's exactly what happens. Throughout the next chapters, all the way to the dying scene in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob shows us what it is to have Yahweh as his God. Not because he's so great, but because his God is so great. His God continues to provide for him all along the way, even in heartbreak, even in sorrow. Yet, he comes to his dying days saying, so many years have I followed this God, though it's been hard. Yet, he's not failed me. He's not failed me. And what he says at the end of his life, he's, been ple he's pledging here as he rests in the promises of God. But he also responds to God's provision. And he responds to God's provision by making a particular promise. At the very end, he says, And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I mentioned just a bit earlier that the promises that God gives in verses 13 and 15, verses 13 to 15, actually parallel the very form of the promises of God given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. Well, this is another parallel to that scene. In Genesis 13, God makes promises concerning the offspring of Abraham and, in, and the land, north, south, east, west, your children will be as the dust of the earth. Chapter 14, after God rescues Lot and others from Sodom, what does Abraham do? You remember? He tithes. And he ties to God through Melchizedek, the priest that lives forever. What's going on here? Well, here in chapter 28, God's made the promises. The same promises made to Abraham are now made to Jacob in the same form. And Jacob, just like Abraham did, said to God, I will give you a tithe. This all parallels Abraham's behavior. But the Another thing that's interesting about this is this is a free will offering. It's actually a response to God's gracious provision. Of course, these tithes in Genesis will set the stage for, for the later codification of the tithe in the Jewish law. But, but Jacob here is not responding out of duty. He's not, he's not responding here because the law is making him. No, he, he's pledging this response out of delight. 
He's pledging this response of this free will offering of giving back to God what he has given him out of grace. Because he's come to know the grace of God. Because God has made these promises. And, and Jacob trusts that God, in fact, will keep his promises. He responds with a glad heart and says, I will give you a tenth of all that is yours. I'll give it back. Isn't that how we respond? Or at least how we're called to respond in the New Testament? Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver, right? But the cheerful giving is ultimately in response to the grace of God. He who is rich beyond all splendor for our sakes became poor. Why? So that we might become rich in him. And having known the grace of God, Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 9, we freely give our things away. We freely give ourselves away. That's how we respond to God's provision. Now these, these free responses to God's promises and provision that, that Jacob make because God's promises to do these things, that they're appropriate not just for Jacob, they're appropriate for us as well. I mean, recognizing God's presence and resting in God's promises and responding to God's provision. I mean, you could, you could make a case that the New Testament presents this as the way we ought to live, so why don't we? Why don't you live that way? Why don't I live that way? I mean, why, why in the midst of stress and conflict and affliction do we not recognize God's presence in the midst of those things, in the midst of our daily lives? Why do we not rest in God's promises? We know them. We've heard them preached in this pulpit for 55 years. Why don't we rest there? Why are we instead busy trying to fix it or trying to manipulate things into our advantage? Why don't we rest in the promises of God? Why don't we respond to God's provision? By giving ourselves away, by giving our stuff away. Well, I think perhaps the root of it may be this. It may be that many of us have not actually had a genuine encounter with the living God. Oh, sure, we know the language. We know the words to say, we know the truths, we know a lot of things about the Bible. But we've not actually had this, a real vital experience of coming into the presence of the Holy. And, and having come into the presence of the Holy One, not be, having actually seen who we are, our sin and our guilt and our shame. And, and because of that, we've not actually run to the only one who's the connector between heaven and earth, the only one who can actually rescue us and bring us into the presence of the Father. I'm not talking about a mystical experience. I'm not talking about some kind of vision or dream. I'm not talking about a, a set of techniques. Because friends, the way into the presence of God, it's not a what. It's not what we say or what we do, what we see. No, the way into the presence of God is found in whom we seek. Because the fact of it is this, there is a stairway to heaven. There is a way to the Father. There is a connector between heaven and earth, but it's not a how. It's not a what. It's not a place, not even this beautiful sanctuary. It's a person. The way into God's presence is a person. Nathaniel in the New Testament discovered that. He was minding his own business. He was just sitting under the fig tree. Perhaps he was reading the Jerusalem Times. We don't know. But as he was sitting there under the fig tree, one of his friends runs up and says, Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. And his name is Jesus and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds, what? 
Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? His friends say, come and see. And Nathaniel does. When he comes and he encounters Jesus, and he comes into relationship with him, he is so over all that what does he say? He says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's what happens when you encounter Jesus. You encounter one who is utterly holy. And when you see yourself as you are, you want to flee and run, but Jesus won't let you because his love draws you in. And what does Jesus say to Nathaniel? He says, I very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, I am Jacob's ladder. I am Jacob's stairway to heaven. Jesus is saying to you this morning, I am the way to God. You can trust me. You can rest in me. In the midst of all that your heart's swirling around with, all the things that have happened in your past weeks or months, you can rest your heart in Jesus Christ because he is the one who takes us into the presence of the Father because he is the one who came from the presence of the Father to die on a cross for sinners like you and me so that through his blood we might be brought nigh to God. And he invites you to come. To stop your running. Stop running from your shame and your guilt, from your conniving and your betrayals and your gossip and your slander and everything else. To stop running. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He'll give you rest if you just come. Come to the one who is this, this connector. Come to the one who is the living God, who's able to change you and transform you. Come to the one who promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he'll be with you even to the end of the age. Come to Jesus Christ and find in him the stairway to heaven. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe the gospel this morning. Wherever we are, whatever our heart condition, whatever our, the walls and defenses we've put up, tear them down. Draw us out of ourselves and bring us to yourself. Because Jesus, you're our only hope in this life, in the life to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.